Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. You are listening to the Run to Daylight Football Funcast with your host, Todd Burroughs. Can you guys hear me now? Yes, I can. All right. Give me a second. Um, I thought I I was doing this wonderful, nice intro, and I'm talking to air. And then I I went for you guys, and you weren't there. So then I saw your your note that you didn't hear me. And uh, can you speak, please? All right. We're live. All right. Uh, say that again. We are live. This is Overhyped Sleeper. Overhyped Sleeper, huh? Yep. yep. We have Mike, Mike on board. Yeah, my mic is not kicking into my ear. All right. Try it one last time. 
Testing, Hello? testing. Overhype sweeper. All right. Uh, all right. Can you guys hear me now? I can hear you. I'm not. Uh, I'm still not hearing you through my headset, which means that the sound is going to be crappy. Uh, oh boy. I'm going to call right back in, guys. Hold on. Okay. All right. Uh, Dan, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Mike, can you hear me? Yes, I can. All right. So uh, we couldn't have really started any worse. Welcome to the latest installment of the Run to Daylight podcast. I am your host, Todd Burroughs. And if you put up with that the last couple minutes, we're going to try and give you a good show. I'm joined by uh, overhyped sleeper Dan Williamson and Mike C. Oliva on Twitter, Mike Oliva. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us, Todd. All right. Yeah, it's good to to have you both. Um, First, we're going to start and we're going to talk a little bit about our overall results. We'll start with you, Mike. So... I had a little bit of an issue with going pretty heavy on Aaron Rodgers, but uh, overall I had a pretty solid season. I had uh, 55 teams total. Uh, six of them came in first, seven came in second, and nine came in third. So my overall ROI was plus 22%. And, you know, I was happy with that. It was my first year going math, but, you know, there was definitely room for improvement. And as we – continue to discuss things in the show um i'll touch on you know where i think i could have really improved all right dan i'm gonna lead into you talking about your um season in a second here i know that uh all right here we go sorry dan okay you ready Yeah, so how was your season? Well, my season uh, for for most of the season was bouncing right around even. And then I started suffering from the Todd Gurley effect at the end of the year. Week 13, I was, uh, I was plus an ROI still by a small amount. In week 14, that moved down to minus 7%. Week 15, minus 13%. And week 16, minus 26%. And this is the kind of thing that happens when you have one share of Todd Gurley out of 76 leagues. Yeah, well, he is he was the the number one player, there was no doubt about it. Um but you've been profitable every other year before this, correct? Yes, that's correct. And um I did kind of change up my my strategy a little bit. Um I did go with a little bit more risky strategy, which I knew going in. Um, unfortunately, I came up on the wrong side of that risk. 
Yeah, it 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 does happen. Um, anyone who follows me on Twitter knows that uh, I've been and the show knows I was pretty honest. I was not profitable my first two years. Uh, this year I had a very good year, not as good as it was at one point. At one point I was winning twenty three, twenty four percent on MFLs. Um, I ended up at like 19.5% on MFLs. I also came in second in about 20 leagues. Um, my ROI for MFLs was in the 80s, and I won four of 18 uh, FFPCs. Uh, so my overall uh, ROI was in the 90s. So uh, as you can imagine, I'm pretty happy. That's outstanding. Yeah, who wouldn't it, be? <laughs> yeah, it, it you know, and and what was really gratifying was I admitted that I wasn't profitable. I took everyone all season long through the steps that I was taking to try and be more profitable. Um, so I, I, you know, it was very gratifying to actually see the strategy lead to. Uh, the success, and I do believe it was, and we'll get into that some here. Um, I've also, for those who might be interested, I taped a Rotoviz best ball pod. I will not be hosting that going forward. They went with other people, uh, but I am the guest on the first episode, and I, um, I I cover a lot of stuff in that. We'll cover some of it also here tonight. And I'll probably be writing about it and talking about it as we go forward. Let's go on to the second subject. Um, you know, Dan, you already covered probably your worst call of the year. Uh, but why don't you uh, take us through your best and worst calls for the year? All right. Well, um, my best calls, and this is going to be a little bit of a short list. I mean, I had a lot of decent calls, just not a lot of great calls. And uh, I did have several bad calls and when you're when you're uh you know using a lot of volume on certain players if uh if you really emphasize some players too much and other players not enough uh that can come back to bite you um some of my best calls Larry Fitzgerald I had 31 and a half percent and and uh he was a great great investment Kenny Stills was a guy I got late that was also uh pretty profitable for me Marvin Jones was somebody I was getting kind of in the mid rounds that was uh also quite profitable for me. And um, you know, at at running back I was I was pretty much even weight on uh guys like Kamara and Ingram and Hunt that were were really weak league winners, but where I was running a little bit short of course was uh Todd Gurley also didn't have any any Chris Thompson really to speak of and he um he would have helped me out a lot earlier in the year. All right, uh, let's go on to you, uh, Mike. Uh, let's see. I mean, my my best calls were probably were Kenny Stills as well. I had him in twenty five percent. I was very heavy on Travis Kelsey. Had him in twenty five percent, and that paid off really, really well. Uh, Larry Fitzgerald at eighteen percent, um, and Devontae Adams at sixteen percent. Uh, one of the other things I consider a best call was I avoided a lot of guys who kind of blew up. Um, I had one share of Amari Cooper. I had none of Brandon Marshall. Uh, so I kind of dodged a lot of the, the bullets, so, far, so to speak, this year. Um, in terms of worst calls, there were many. Um, I was tremendously overweight on Hunt 
and Gurley and Hopkins. I only had them at 4%. Um, I was incredibly over-optimistic on Doug Martin. I mean, he was my highest-owned player. I, I, I really thought he was going to take over that Tampa Bay backfield. I had him at 27%. Uh, same logic with Terrence West. And- Sorry, that was for and- Doug Martin. <laughs> and then, I mean, I really thought Julius Thomas was going to come and do something in Miami. I had him at 27%, and he just never did it. Um, and then a couple injury bugs. I had Anquan Bolden at 20%. Uh, I picked him up in the 20th round of basically every league for like a month. And he got to ball, uh, Buffalo and realized he just hated it there. And and then I had a lot of Odell Beckham and Aaron Rodgers, both about 16%. And, you know, neither of them worked out really well due to injuries. Well, for me, um, you would think with the the results that I gave you, that I'd, ha- I'd just have like a laundry list of great calls. Uh, I really do think that my strategy that I laid out um, throughout the offseason about be- paying more attention to bye weeks, uh, stacking, uh, being a little more risk tolerant than I had been in the past, and using an ADP tool to pick every time, uh, really, uh, I think, is the key driver for me. Uh, as well, I wrote an article on defenses, and I I missed a couple of the defenses, but I had, uh, out of 150 shares, I had 27 Rams, 25 Jaguars. Um, my, uh, it, what's really, really interesting with the way my strategy just worked out almost unintelligent uh, without me knowing is, uh, believe it or not, guys, I didn't have more than 23% on any player. Uh, and that yeah, player and I think was that's key. That, uh, it wasn't intentional. Um, I mean, I wasn't. You know, I I, I compare it on the uh, Rotoviz pod to the way I look at exposure is like a dog in the backyard with an electric fence. You put the fence up so he doesn't go beyond certain boundaries, but really you don't care what he does within inside the fence. Um, you know, I was just focused on making good picks and. Uh, so Ertz was my best call of the year. At one point, I had 35% of him. And the big guys, I didn't have, like, a huge amount of, but I was certainly overweight on Todd Gurley. I kicked myself because I let people talk me out of it. I go back to my first draft or my third draft of the year, and I took Todd Gurley at 2-2, uh, Michael Thomas at one eleven, and – you know, I could have had Todd. I could have had forty Todd Gurley shares instead of twenty-two, um, but I had a good amount of them. I was even weight on Hopkins. I, uh, I I was well overweight on both Kamara and Hunt. And Kamara, I was buying a lot towards the end of the year when everyone assumed after that playoff game with uh, where Peterson and Ingram played the third playoff game. I'm like, that's old thinking that the third playoff game is this like, you know, the all, you know, it's like the litmus test and Kamara started dropping, you know, into the 12th, 13th round. I was scooping him. I had 21 shares of him, but I had plenty of bad calls and plenty of injuries. My number one defense was the Tampa Bay bucks. I had 33 shares of Giovanni Bernard. Uh, I had um, 31 shares of Will Fuller who was hurt most of the year like you guys, I had 30 shares of Kenny Stills, 
Jay Ajayi, 29 shares. Spencer Ware, Hurt, 29 shares. Odo Beckham was my number one. I had 20 shares of Beckham. Uh, He was my highest-owned first-round pick. So when you look at it all, you might wonder how I got the results that I did, but I just think that, you know, I made enough right calls, and I just was really solid in every draft, and it's what kept me competitive. Yeah, I think those are good points, Todd. And, uh, you know, a couple things on that. Uh, Number one, if you look at any MFL after it's done, what you're going to see is everybody made more bad calls than good calls. So you just need to make a couple, you know, two or three more good calls than everybody else, and that's all it takes to win, really. I think that's a great point, Dan. Um, Our next question. Go ahead. I, I have one other thing I want to cover on that. Uh, one of the one of the hidden disadvantages of being too heavy on any one player is it kind of by necessity forces you to be extremely light on anybody who's kind of within that ADP range. You know, like Larry Fitzgerald was a great pick for me at thirty one and a half thirty one and a half percent ownership. But it also meant I wasn't getting like any Jarvis Landry or, you know, guys like that. You know, so there were a lot of uh, other productive players right around there that I wasn't getting. And then you take a look at some players like, um, you know, Doug Baldwin was probably the guy I was drafting instead of Gurley the most often. And being very heavy on Baldwin just meant that I really wasn't getting any Gurley at all. So uh, there was kind of a trade-off there. Well, and I'm going to go to Mike in a second for that to follow up on, on these thoughts. But, um you know, I talk a lot about tiers, and, you know, I'm never going to drop down a tier to take someone w- for a strategy or an exposure unless it's late in the draft and I need to do it to fill out a roster uh, the right way. Uh, but, uh, you know, by having three or four guys in any given range that you like, you can mix it up, and that's part of the reason I didn't have more than 23%. Mike, your thoughts? Yeah, I just actually really wanted to, to champion Dan's point about missing out on guys in that ADP range. I mean, so for me, three of my highest-known guys were Doug Martin, Blay Powell, and um, John Brown. And those guys were going in the 6, 7, 8 range. And, you know, I had 15 shares of each. You know, which is about 27% for me. So, yes, you know, in a lot of drafts, my sixth through eighth round was some combination of Powell, Martin, John Brown, something like that, which caused me to miss out on, you know, for a while Hunt was in that range, for a while uh, Camara was in that range. Um, you know, again, to the point of, of Baldwin, I had a lot of Baldwin. I'm a big believer in him. That cost me, you know, shots at Gurley, shots at Hopkins. I passed over Keenan Allen for him often. Um, you know, even though I got the Kelsey call right, you know, taking him in the third, fourth constantly was also, you know, a lot of times I took Kelsey over Keenan Allen or, you know, maybe even DeAndre Hopkins when he was falling. So I do think there's something to be said when, when you do plant your flag on a guy. Um, you really lose the opportunity to, to have exposure to the guys around him in the ADP range. And that could be a good thing and a bad thing. That, that's a very good point. Uh, I know I, I forget which one of you guys I was on with when I said 
Baldwin was my highest owned guy over the last two years, but I, I felt that his, he was going, you know, the perceived safety that people saw in him. Uh, I, I, I wasn't buying him because I don't like drafting people at the top of their outcomes. And I felt like he was, um, and I'm going to talk more about that and supercharging your winning percentages when we get to one of the later questions. So uh, unless one of you guys wants to respond to that, I'll move on to the next question. All right. I think we're good. All right. So uh, next one up, we're going to go to Mike first, and it's the key lessons that you learned. So, and I think this will help a lot of guys who are, who may be listening, who dabbled in, in MFL 10s and, you know, are debating making the jump that I made this year from dabbling to going, you know, high volume. Uh, you know, there are a few things that I learned, especially in my first year doing it in math. Uh, one of the biggest things I learned was, you know, people always talk about, you know, only two quarterbacks and this and that, and quarterbacks are consistent. And so a lot of times I found myself, when I got a top-tier quarterback like an Aaron Rodgers, um, I was taking bottom-of-the-barrel QBs as backup you know, Mike Glennon and stuff like that, because I figured, you know, Rogers is going to be my guy every week and he got hurt. And I found myself with the poo-poo platter quarterback, you know, running half of these, you know, 15% of my team. I actually won one of the NFL tens that I was in with no quarterback because I had Rogers and Glennon and Glennon was benched and Rogers was hurt. But, you know, I have, that team just happened to be so stacked. I was able to win without a quarterback. It's funny, um, I, I, it's I had one of those, too. I had a Rodgers-Tannehill winner. <laughs> yeah. Those, well, I mean, those I are so fun. I had a Ke- I had Keenan Allen, Hopkins, um, Tyreek Hill, uh, Antonio Brown. It was, it was a stacked team. Um, but I think it's really important to, to, to remember that anyone can get injured. Um, and it's really important to have backups. And if you have two stud QBs, then then you can feel pretty confident. But, you know, just because you get a top three QB, you still have to have someone backing up. And if not, then you got to take two guys. You know, I could have easily grabbed an Alex Smith late, who turned out to be great, you know, just, just to have a physical body at the position. Uh, and that happened to me at tight end as well. I was heavy on Pitta. And we all know how that ended, and I ended up with a lot of leagues where I had one tight end. Um, so I think it's important to remember, you know, anybody can get injured, and, and there is a need for depth. And, and sometimes that depth is just literally having a physical body who's playing, you know, as opposed to a zero in the spot every week. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's a People get caught up in roster construction, you know, and I, like I prefer to take two quarterbacks over three, um, you know, because it's such a stable position. But if I'm, you know, if I don't like my second quarterback, I'll take a third. And so exactly. I, I, you know, like with quarterback and tight end, tight end, I normally take three so I can take some more chances. Quarterback, you know, it's the same thing. I, I, I feel like, you know, I can get by with two, but if um, I, you know, like if I don't like the two that I got, uh, I will absolutely, like for a while I was taking Kaiser in the 20th round 
when stuff came up. And even though he didn't have a great year, um, if, if, you know, you had some problems, uh, he was nice to have. I'm going to go to Dan in a second, but I want to go over this Rogers Tannehill team. I had uh, Melvin Gordon, Jordan Howard, Alvin Kamara, Joe Mixon, and Bilal Powell at running back. Devontae Adams, Crowder, Inua, Funches, Mike Wallace, and Woods. Not great wide receivers, but I had Evan Engram and Ertz at tight, at tight end. So it was a, it was the, those those running backs. I guess took me. It's just weird that that you win with that. Um, all right, Dan, yeah. What do you I think? mean, that's one of those rosters that just doesn't even sound like a league winner. You know, if you just rattle it off to somebody and say, "Guess what place I ended up in," you'd probably say like fifth. Yeah, yeah, no, and and not only did I win, I won by like sixty points. Uh, it was a twenty-three hundred point team. So Dan, uh, it, your turn to answer the question. Well, a couple of the the key lessons I learned. One one is um, you know it, after being profitable for you know three seasons in a row, I really. I really went out and did a little bit more heavy risk taking than what I would normally do, and I'd say the first lesson that I picked up was just, uh, you know, stick to what's working. Um, it's it's real easy to to feel confident, you know, and I look back and I see, you know, on these winning, uh, you know, years that I had before, I was like, wow, you know, I knew that this guy and this guy and this guy were going to be good players, and I just, you know, if I'd have grabbed more of them, I could have won even more, uh, you know, so this year I went out and I did some of that, but what you kind of forget is that everything sort of looks inevitable after it's happened. You know, it's real <laughs> easy to, <laughs> you know, to say, well, yeah, obviously Camaro is a league winning pick. I mean, you know, he's on the saints. It's a great offense. He's a, he's a pass catching back. He's got Drew Brees throwing him the ball. Everybody knows Camaro is going to be great. Well, no, nobody did because we were drafting him in the, you know, 10th, 11th, 12th round. No, that's a, that's a great point. Um, I would say that the key lesson that I learned is I did better at it this year. I think the hardest thing to do when you're drafting over six months, because let's face it, the us degenerates, that's basically what it is. You right, know, today. I look back at, and I was a lot better at not letting other people's thoughts crowd out my own. But there were still, like I mentioned, you know, I, I was like Todd Gurley. You know, he's got all the talent in the world. He's got a new coach. He's got Andrew Whitworth. He's got John Sullivan. Uh, you know, he, he's you know. But I, I stopped draft. I mean, if you look, I like I went like a month and a half without drafting him. Uh, right. So I, I think the key lesson learned is uh, stick to your strategy if it's a good strategy. Try and be balanced. That was the whole point for me. I'm not saying that everyone needs to be more risky. I was saying that I wasn't taking enough risks, um, and I took a, a proper amount this year. So when you when you say when I say you need risk tolerance, it means you know for me I was just completely avoiding people who ended up being league winners because of concerns like Jordan Reed two years ago. I loved Jordan Reed as a player. He was in the 14th round. How much risk was there that I right. that I had? like one share out of 80 drafts. Uh, so my, my, my big uh, uh, lesson learned is to, you know, 
be balanced as best you can and stick to the, you know, stick. And I would much rather lose drafting guys that I like than lose because someone talked me off of someone that I liked. Yep. Though I'll warn you, Todd, be careful about that. I I lost with a lot of guys I like this year. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I'm going to go to uh, Mike for one last thought on that. Yeah, and it's kind of what you were saying about people talking you off, but I think it's also kind of the collective wisdom. You know, people have too short-term of memory. And, you know, when, when I was looking at guys I liked and guys I didn't, uh, one of the things that I kind of – I think I fell into was overweighting situations and underweighting talent. Um, you know, I was criminally underweight on DeAndre Hopkins and Keaton Allen. only had them on two teams only had three shares of Gurley. And, you know, a lot of that was, I realize, I mean, I think there's no debate, and even going into the year, that Hopkins, Allen, and Gurley were incredibly talented. Um, You know, but Hopkins, the quarterback situation worried me. Allen, the injury situation. Gurley, the offense. You know, there were all these things where I I just kind of, you know, I I ended up not taking these guys because, I was just worried about injuries and situations and not looking at talent. Um, luckily, I wised up with the New Orleans backfield. Eventually, I at first, I was like, it's crowded. No one will do well. And eventually, I was like, look, that offense always does well. And so I started adding on Kamara and Ingram, and that worked out well. But I, I think we, we need to not be so myopic and, and forget about talent and instead looking at previous year's results. And I think that's going to happen next year. You know, guys like Amari Cooper, who had really bad years this year, you know, I'm going to, I bet we're going to see them fall. And, you know, they may provide a lot of value. You know, Amari Cooper's still a really talented 23-year-old. So I think it's important to remember that, you know, we can't just look at previous year's results and say everything's going to play out the exact same way because that that's not – Well, and that's a really good point, and it leads into my number one takeaway from the season, but I'll save it for that category, which is coming up, Um, but you you brought up an excellent point, and I I have some numbers to back it up, Um, and, and we'll cover that when we get to question five, but for now, question four, what strategies did you implement this year? And what are your takeaways? Dan, I know you wanted one last point on the last subject and then head into strategies. Okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll just head into strategies now. I can uh, I can fit the other one in under the takeaways just as easily. So, uh, But uh, really, uh, strategy-wise, I think, first off, um, you know, you don't – you still don't want to be afraid to bet big where you really like players, but – uh, I think I'm going to be dialing it back to about 15 to 20% maximum exposure. Um, in future years, you know, you can still punch out a very hefty ROI with uh, 15 to 20% max exposure to any player. And again, that well, just kind of it, comes down. It should depend on when you draft them. I mean, 15 to 20% in the first five, six rounds, maybe, but you get into the 13th, 14th, 15th round. I think that uh, that's when I'm willing to consider more exposure. Sure, and I, you know, I I will agree with that to a certain extent. Though, um, you know, I was making some picks where, uh, you know, I I 
I was picking like uh, Stills instead of Funchess in places, or instead of uh, you know Chris Hogan instead of Funchess and things like that. So, you know, I, I there were some other players that I should have considered because they were probably equally good, and I, you know, I kind of knew at the time that there was a good chance that they were equally good, but for whatever reason, you know, I just kind of had my favorite guys, so I went with them. All right, um, uh, Mike. I'm sorry. Oh, that, you... Yeah, I got uh, a couple, couple other quick ones. You know, I okay, think go ahead. I think it's important to not get enamored uh, too much of certain strategies. You know, like this year, one of the things I really was looking at was early quarterback. You know, because the uh, quarterbacks were going so late. I mean, you know, you were getting uh, Brady was going into the fifth commonly. Uh, Aaron Rodgers was in the fourth, sometimes into the fifth, uh, every now and then into the sixth. Drew Brees, I mean, I picked up so many shares of him in the late sixth and the early seventh, you know, and and uh, it seemed like a very good bet, and in historical context, it was a great bet, but this year just didn't match what we had seen in past years. So, uh, you know, things can change, and what I wish I'd done was I'd been a little bit less, uh, you know, pursuing that early quarterback strategy and a little bit more uh, balanced in my my uh, approach to quarterbacks overall. You yeah, know, and I think that's one... a – I, I think good structured drafting can really save your bacon even if you don't do as well at picking the exact right players. Uh, you know, just by by spreading your strategies out a little bit more, uh, it, it can save you because some of those strategies are going to be, you know, kind of league winning strategies all by themselves, just uh, structurally. And uh, when you can get into a few of those, and then you can get into a few teams where you really pick the right players, that's when you can really start stacking up the wins. Yep. I, I, the quarterback is one that I, I actually analyzed right this year. I I I felt like Russell Wilson at times was going in the seventh and eighth round, uh, so I I felt like I didn't need to take those early quarterbacks as much. Um, I would take Aaron Rodgers when you know he dipped, um, but I didn't have much. I I, I was really on uh, Cam early, and then I transferred over to Wilson. Uh, uh, Mike, your turn. Uh, I think one of my biggest strategies, I, I was using um, Fantasy ADHD's um, ADP tool uh, to kind of identify value and who was dropping. And, you know, a lot of times I found myself taking guys I didn't like just because they presented so much value. You know, they had slipped two or three rounds. And at that point, even though I didn't like the guy, it just presented too much value. And, and that was really my key strategy other than roster construction. And it, it did work for me. I mean, actually, you know, the, the guys I set my flag on, uh, uh, you know, the 16 players I had in over 20% of my league, only three had solid seasons. Um, so, you know, three of the 16 is not a, a good percentage. Uh, the rest of my picks are really dominated by value. I mean, I remember in one draft getting Josh Dawson in, like, the 15th round. And, you know, I'm not the biggest fan of him. I didn't think he was having a great year. But the value at that point, the upside, I, I just couldn't turn away from. So, I mean, I think my biggest strategy was just kind of, you know, value at every pick. You know, if someone's dropping, grab him, and, you know, just maximize that value. Yeah, I – 
I, I, you know, I, I used an ADP tool every pick as well, uh, but I wasn't myopic about it. I used it as a guide, and more it was just to collect my thoughts and to make sure I was, you know, thinking things through. Uh, but I don't think there's anything wrong with taking a guy who's falling three rounds unless, you know, you, you don't like him at that round, right? So, you know, if you think, if I thought, uh, you know, player X, was going in the 10th round was a 16th round pick. I'm not going to take him in the 14th. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, if there's a guy that I didn't get too often in the ninth or 10th round, because he, uh, you know, there were other guys I liked and I thought he was being overdrafted by a little bit and he popped up in the 11th round, I would take definitely take that opportunity to get a share of him. So I, I think it's, uh, you know, I wish that there was one easy answer to this whole exposure thing, uh, but it's hit or miss year to year. As far as strategies go, for me, I like to be aware of all of them. Zero running back, hyper fragile, uh, two QB, you know, early QB, late QB. But the one thing that is consistent that I did well this year on was I let the drafts come to me rather than trying to enforce my strategy on the drafts. So that was my number one strategy was to be aware of all strategies, be willing to use all strategies, but not to force any strategies. Any thoughts on that? Uh, We'll go to you, Mike, first. I agree with that. And that's kind of what I did. Uh, You know, there were some, I mean, I never went hyper fragile. Um, I'm just not, it's just a little too much risk for me, but if the, you know, again, value in the draft coming to you, you know, if, if I like my first three picks of running back based on who was available, then that's what I did. And, you know, the, the team that I won with, you know, with no quarterback, um, you know, my first four of my first five picks were wide receivers just because that's, the way it went, um, you know, the, the exception being Aaron Rodgers. But, you know, in that one, I started off with Antonio Brown, DeAndre Hopkins, Keenan Allen, and Tyrese Hill. Um, and that, that won the lead for me. Um, so, you know, basically, I agree with that whole, you know, letting the draft come to you. And, you know, if you start out with four wide receivers, because those are the best guys that are coming to you, that, that's fine. If it's you start out with four running backs or, you know, I mean, basically. Exactly. Exactly. And that's strategy. Yeah. I agree a hundred percent. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think that, you know, like I, I, to me, uh, zero running back isn't just about taking a bunch of wide receivers and tight ends early. It's also a strategy that, you know, people forget the second half of that strategy is that you look for certain types of running backs late. So that's what I mean by, you know, wow, I, 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 I'm value hunting. I'm getting, I'm making good picks early. And it just turns out that they're all, you know, I got four wide receivers and a tight end. Well, now I know I'm in a zero running back draft. I know how to handle that. I know that I need to look for pass catching backs and backs who um, are pass-catching who could maybe take over the full role if, uh, 
if someone gets hurt to maybe draft a Tevin Coleman in the sixth or seventh round where maybe I wouldn't early or a Derrick Henry. So, uh, Dan, any thoughts on this subject? Yeah, I think, um, you know, first off, I, I'm going to avoid being underweight too many early round players. Um, being underweight on those early round players really um, is an, a very asymmetric risk when you start thinking about it. I mean, you know, if you if you look at, well, if I'm going to have, you know, a, a, a normal amount of shares, one out of 12, that's 8.33%. And that's really the, the maximum you can save if you, you know, even if you completely fade a guy, um, you know, if I if I'm if I have no girly shares whatsoever, and girly ends up busting, the most number of teams it's going to save is about you know eight and a third percent of my teams where I might have taken them. But if he's got a 31 percent win rate, you can see that I I completely missed out on a ton of positive risk there. Where if I had been even average weight on girly, I would have probably won two or three more leagues, which would have been enough to to put me into the positive. So I think you got to really watch being underweight early in the early in it because you're going to you can only save yourself so much but you expose yourself to not being able to capture those really really big league winning players. Well, and if you read my article on football diehards where I laid out my four factors, uh, when I talk about risk, that's exactly what I meant. I might not like Todd Gurley but I don't want zero of him, right? Right. Uh, you know, uh, I didn't like Melvin Gordon the year before, but having zero of him really, really hurt me. So that's what I mean by, you know, forcing myself to take guys that I thought I think are risky who also have upside. That's the other part of it. They have to have that upside. And right. Todd Gurley certainly did. Um, all right, so that's going to lead to the next question, which I'll go first on because Mike already kind of hit on the key point of this. What were your biggest takeaways from the season? Mine was, you know, I was doing this best ball leaderboard article for Rotoviz, and we were tracking weekly. Uh, you know, we were assigning points based on finish to show consistency and then comparing it to the win rate of each player. And certain things just started not adding up, right? So, like, when you think of win rate, you would expect that it would have to do with, first, the player's performance, second, who he was drafted around, you know, like uh, like Love Bell and Antonio Brown. You know, if Odell Beckham gets hurt, you know that's going to help those guys, right? Well. Right. It wasn't all making sense because I was seeing things like Russell Wilson having a higher winning percentage than Carson Wentz. And the other key factor is when are you drafted? Well, Wentz was drafted seven, eight rounds later. Wilson and Wentz had about the same season. Why is Wilson having such a much better win rate than Wentz? It didn't make any sense. The other one that really didn't make sense was we all know Lev Bell is better than Melvin Gordon, but Melvin Gordon had a good season. It was a five-point-a-game difference between them, and Lev Bell is around 23%, and 
and Melvin Gordon was at 7%. And that was a disconnect for me. And then it dawned on me that by ADP, if you were drafting Lev Bell and or Antonio Brown with your first pick, it was putting you in position ADP-wise to get Gurley and to get Hopkins. Where, yeah. you know, the Amari Coopers were already gone, the Jordan Howards, the Jay Ajayis, all those guys who were bad were being paired up with guys like Melvin Gordon. So, and then I yep. thought, and then I thought that the year before the same thing happened. David Johnson was going anywhere from ninth to 12th. Ezekiel Elliott was going, you know, late first, early second. And after his suspension, so was Lev Bell. So when you see these supercharged results, these supercharged winning percentages, it has to do with, you know, who your first, you know, having a good first round pick, but really nailing that second or third round pick. And so I, I, I'm going to, my biggest takeaway is I'm going to be looking for guys like what you talked about, Mike, like the Amari Coopers. I would put Mike Evans in that list. Guys who have all the talent in the world and it didn't work. You know, T.Y. Hilton's the third guy that I've identified. Uh, who ha- it, it wasn't because of their talent that they didn't succeed. It was because of their situation and you're going to get a discount on those guys next year. And that's when you start seeing these 20, 25, 28% winning percentages is when you're pairing these two together. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And that, that actually even explains, I think, Russell Wilson a little bit, because if you look at his ADP, he was pretty tightly in the late sixth, early seventh. So, you know, that would have been, again, right in there with those uh, those Gurley and Bell owners. Right. And then the other th- – well, and then the other takeaway I had was that at the quarterback position, it's really good to mix one safe quarterback with one risky quarterback. And what I mean by that is Cam Newton and Russell Wilson had the best winning percentages on the year. They would. They were the guys putting up those thirty-point weeks, but they also had eight to ten-point weeks, especially Newton. But in a best ball, we all know that quarterback is the flattest position for scoring. Correct. Right. Yeah. So if you're taking two and you've got one guy who's going to give you fifteen, eighteen points every week, you know you're not losing much. But those weeks when Cam and uh, Newton put up 35 points, you can't recreate that the other way. So that right. was my other big takeaway, that at the quarterback position, you want to try and p- pair one of these guys who's more volatile with a more stable guy to take advantage of the big weeks. Dan, your thoughts on that, and then your big takeaways. Okay. Yeah, I would I would definitely agree with that, and to a certain extent, I've you know that's been one of my secrets over the past few years is I do that at all the positions. You know, if I see you know I, I'll be taking a look, you know, eight, ten, twelve rounds in, I'm I'm always kind of assessing what sort of wide receivers do I have, what sort of running backs do I have, are these guys, you know, kind of those safe uh, accumulators of points. Or are they the boom-bust guys? And if I've got safe accumulators of points, then I'm going to go out and I'm going to start looking for some boom-bust guys. 
if I've got boom bust guys early, then I'm going to start looking for some of those accumulators later uh, because I just want to I want to make sure I can put a floor underneath uh, my risk, but I don't want to cap my ceiling. So if I have too many guys who are just safe floor guys, then I got to go out and I've got to find some ceiling somewhere. So that's that's one of the things I try to do. Um, you know, in general, I think. Um, you know, you got to buy the volume, even if you hate the player. Uh, you know, Gurley, I, I didn't hate Gurley, but I didn't love him. And I really was not sold on Goff. And, you know, I didn't know any, you know, McVeigh. Sure, he, he, you know, he turned out to be a fantastic coach. But we didn't really know that going in. I mean, we hoped that he was, but there was no guarantee that he was. I mean, you know, he could have been an awful coach. And if he'd been awful or if, or if Goff had been awful – then Gurley probably would have been awful. Um, but Gurley was still getting the volume, which kind of put a floor underneath him almost no matter what. I mean, he knew he was going to be in, a running back too, you know, even in the worst of circumstances. So, you know, I should have been buying more Gurley. Uh, same thing with Landry. Same thing with uh, with Hopkins. You know, those are those are guys I should have been buying just because you know those touches are going to be there for him. And normally I'm very good at, you know, buying those touches. That's one of the things I look for is touches. But uh, I just I let myself uh, feel a little bit too much hate for certain situations. And, uh, you know, I let the efficiency argument creep in there a little bit more than I should have. All right, Mike, your turn. Yeah, I agree with a lot of what both of you said. I mean, the whole boom bust versus consistency, I'm a big fan of that. It's one of the reasons I had no problem drafting Tyreek Hill. Uh, you know, a lot of people were wondering about his, you know, him being a true wide receiver one, and I had no issue with that. I figured he was going to get me, you know, some boom weeks, and he did. And, you know, that's the same philosophy behind why it took so much Kenny Stills. You know, I figured a lot of weeks he'd do nothing, but he would always be good for a few 6-180 and a touch weeks, which he was. Um, you know, I think the other two things, uh, Dan just mentioned buying touches, you know, that that's a huge takeaway, and it's something I didn't do a lot this year. You know, guys like Gurley and Hopkins, Keenan Allen, you know they're going to get the ball. And, you know, you, you need to have some exposure to them, regardless of situation. And then the last one's really just diversification. You know, I look at, as I said, my three biggest guys were, you know, Doug Martin, Billy Powell, and John Brown. And that's a chunk of that six to eight run area. And what ends up happening is I'm missing out on everyone else in that range. Um, you know, if I look at my most own, I can't find another guy going in the sixth to eighth round until we get to like 5% ownership because all of my ownership in those rounds is concentrated around three people. And, you know, that if I would have hit them and got them right, it would have been great. But the reality is it, it's really not the smartest play to just concentrate, especially you know, for a, a three-round chunk of the draft on three guys, um, you know, that you, you're going to miss a lot more than you're going to win with that. Yeah, I, I would agree. Uh, uh, you know, and, and I'm lucky, I guess, that I, you know, my issue is I like too many people. Uh, I, that's one of the things I really struggle with in DFS. Um, so, and and the other the other key point that I'll bring up when it comes to this is, ADP is first very, very adaptive. 
ADP is a, a really, you know, if something good happens, you know, you'll see a player's ADP move. And so, you know, not just using an ADP tool when you pick, but really being on top of the moves of ADP and the value that you have on a guy, uh, that also can help you to control your exposure. Like I really like Kyle Rudolph. At one point I was over 30% on him. Well, at some point the rest of the drafters seemed to catch up and all of a sudden he was an eighth round pick instead of a late ninth and 10th round pick. Well, I had far less interest in him there. So, you know, use ADP and the way it changes to help you to set up your exposure. Uh, any more thoughts or, or do we want to go on to the next question? I just have one quick comment on that, that ADP thing. You got to remember over the six months that we're drafting really outside of the draft and, you know, free agent signings and stuff, uh, not, nothing's actually happening. And I mean, how many times can the two of you remember where a person's ADP moved two or three rounds because Roto World put out a blurb? Um, so, I mean, being proactive in, in looking at why did this guy just jump and is it warranted, um, you know, is, is really important because people overreact. I mean, Roto World can put out a blurb on player X and they'll move from the 11th round to the 9th because we're just starving for news. Um, so I think it opens up some value uh, when you see these weird movements, uh, you know, kind of zigging away from them. Because uh, not all news, not all coach speak is valuable. I, yeah, I cough, couldn't cough, agree Mike more. Mike Gillisley, <laughs> cough, yeah. cough, Rex Burkhead. Exactly. Well, that, all of them. That was one that I, I, I did really well with. Uh, like, I wasn't buying Burkhead in the eighth round, and then they signed Gillisley, and I wasn't buying Gillisley in the sixth round. But boy, I, I, you know, Burkhead ended up being one of my highest owned people because all of a sudden, you know, he, some drafts he wasn't even getting drafted, and right. uh, you know, yeah. I could I could get him wherever I wanted him in the 16th, 17th, 18th round of most drafts. Um, yeah, and I, I got thought quite to a myself, few of them there too. Yeah, I, I I felt like he had as much, you know. So I, I agree. You know, you got to constantly be weighing the crowd and trying to find opportunities to leverage uh, emotion. You know, buying the, it, it, a lot of people compare this to buying stocks, and it's a really great comparison. And, you know, when everyone's buying, you should be selling, and everyone is selling, you should be buying as long as you have a reason for what you're doing. Todd Buffett. I yeah. actually wrote an article on, on, on how to draft like, like Warren Buffett on football diehards last year, believe it or not. Um, yeah. yeah, I remember that one. But, I, you know, I just want to say on that point, if you are the first one to draft a Patriots running back in any draft, you are the sucker in the room. <laughs> yeah, I, I had almost no James White, almost no Mike Gillisley, um, almost no Deion Lewis, which, you know, in hindsight, and I had a ton of Burkhead and you know what, if Burkhead hadn't gotten hurt, it, it, I would have had an a even better winning percentage, I think. Yeah, you're probably right. And it, even so, I mean, just those few weeks that he had that were really good. I mean, those really help out a lot when you're getting somebody in the 16th round. 
Absolutely. It's no different than the theory of Kenny Stills. Why do all, why did all three of us like Kenny Stills? Cause we knew that there could, there'd be three weeks where Kenny Stills wouldn't score a point for our team, but the fourth week he'd score 22 points and we would be so glad that we drafted him in the 14th round. It's no exactly. different with the go ahead. Yeah, it's I was no different. Okay. It's so hard to hear when you're doing these shows. Go ahead, Mike. No, I was just going to say Burkhead was a great example, you know, because that's a guy where the fundamentals of that backfield never changed. And he went from, at one point, an eighth-round pick to, as you said, you were getting him in the 17th, 18th. Sometimes he didn't even get drafted. But the situation never changed. Nothing changed. And, you know, it was just rumors of how they were going to utilize the backs. And all of a sudden, you're talking 10-round drops. And it's like, that's a buying opportunity. It goes back to your article on, on buying like Buffett. That's, you know, nothing changed. And, and all of a sudden, these values are opening up. Yeah, like when Kamara dropped two to three rounds because he didn't play in the third preseason game. I'm like, did exactly. you see the second preseason game? The guy was freaking amazing. Sean Payton loved the guy. They traded up for him. He, he, he fits a niche that neither of the other two guys is going to fit. Now, did I think he would be as dominant as he is? No. Did I watch tape and like his tape? Yes. But I didn't think he would be, you know, I'd be lying if I said I thought he would be as good as he was. But I knew in the 13th round that he was definitely worth some ownership. I mean, he was worth ownership in the 10th, 11th round. So, yeah. you know, be looking, constantly be looking to analyze the news that you hear and establish what you believe on it. Wait to see what the crowd does. And if the crowd overreacts, like a perfect one for me was Terrell Pryor. Terrell Pryor was one of those guys who, did I like Terrell Pryor? Sure. I liked him plenty in the ninth round. Uh, but you know, everyone kept talking about him based on like five, six games, and he was in the fifth round or the fourth round, and the and and the guy had only played wide. It's not like a, a Zach Ertz who put up eight strong games at the end of the season, and I was buying him because of it. Pryor had a good year, but he had never played wide receiver before. He went to a different team where they had other options. I just couldn't pay fourth round for prior. Yep. But the uh, more people talked about yep. him, the higher he went. Yeah. Yeah. And I kind of went the opposite way on Kamara. I mean, early in the season, I couldn't stand Kamara. I hated him. I thought, ah, oh, this guy is, he's basically a, a trumped up Traveris cadet. I don't think he's that good, et cetera, et cetera. But then the training camp reports start coming in, and you start looking, and you're going, you know, I keep hearing the same drumbeat for the same guy. And that's the point where you start paying attention, and I, I realized I'm low on Kamara, so I started looking for more opportunities to draft him, and I ended up getting myself up to the point where I was basically even or a little bit ahead on Kamara. Yeah, Kevin the Engineer had a pod I listened to where they talked about the drumbeat, and I've always been, and that's the other thing that I did better this year and I hope to continue to do better at is once it's so easy. Human nature is once you've made your mind up on something, you don't want to change it. It takes effort to think. 
and the drum beat a lot of if it's a steady drum beat it's actionable if it's one right. blurb it's not and it's I, the yeah. other thing i've discovered is the same thing with injuries you know i for a while i was avoiding everyone coming off of injury well what i've noticed is that guys who are having trouble you start hearing about it well before so if someone's coming off an acl and there's a delay he's supposed to come on the field in a month and a month comes by and he's not ready to come on the field that's a big red flag and just the opposite if someone had a major surgery and you don't hear a word about him or whatever you hear is good that's a buying opportunity because people who have these injuries like andrew luck we knew that Andrew Luck was a risk all the way back in maybe April when, you know, yeah. coming off that shoulder injury. And then you started hearing negative things and it's like, you don't want to believe it. And it's just the opposite. If you have it in your head that an injury is a bad thing, you know, uh, look at Keenan Allen. I mean, I started buying him heavy late and I was, you know, lower early, the reason I started buying heavy late is I didn't hear one negative thing about his rehab. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a great point. You know, and there, you know, and with a, a quarterback like luck, you know, I actually, there was a time where I was buying some luck and it was kind of at that point where we, you know, it was still pretty early in the off season and we'd heard some negative news, but I was like, well, there's still plenty of time. But it seemed like people were starting to panic on him, and his his price had dropped, you know, down to the ninth, tenth round or whatever. And, you know, so I started picking up some shares. But then all of a sudden, the injury news never really changed. And so I got off him again just about as quick as I got on him. So I ended up limiting my exposure to him that way just because I was paying attention to, you know, kind of that steady drumbeat of news and, while it it made me think there was a maybe a brief buying window, you know, I pretty pretty quickly determined no, that's a fake window. Yep. All right. So we're going to move on to our last subject. We you, we I love talking to you guys, and we could go on about these points forever. Uh, but I really want to get into the biggest news in the industry over the last uh, couple weeks. The MFL tens are moving. They packed their bags. They've been sold traded to Fanball for a couple bucks and uh, a player to be named later. Uh, I'm going to start with you, Dan. Uh, Fanball came out with an email kind of laying out some of their strategies. Uh, I want to give you a chance to give your thoughts on uh, what we've seen so far. Okay. Well, um, you know, I've, I've tried to keep a fairly open mind. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'll admit I was a little bit peeved when, you know, this this money that I had sitting in my account or that should have been sitting in my account at MFL all of a sudden was property of FanDuel. Uh, you know, I just, I felt like, hey, that's that's my money. It should it should stay where I invested it, you know, or where I put it rather than all that moving over to a new company. But they, they have handled that pretty well. So, uh, you know, I'll give them a little bit of a pass on that. What I have noticed is, you know, things definitely are going to change. And, you know, trying to I'm trying to look at it as evenly as I possibly can um, you know they were they were at an eight point three three percent rake under m f l or under my fantasy league when they were running the m f l s 
And, you know, that probably isn't going to cut it when all of a sudden you're having to pay, you know, $50,000 to be in New York or $50,000 to be in Massachusetts or wherever it happens to be. Um, so, you know, the, the league prizes are going down some. The, you know, I guess what I'm concerned about is the rake has jumped all the way from eight and a third percent to 16 and two thirds percent, less some $35,000 in prizes that they're going to distribute to, you know, some of the highest winners. Um, you know, so there, there are definitely some concerns there with me. Some of the things I do like about what MFL or what they're going to be doing with MFLs that Fanball is talking about, they're going to have drafts available with a four-hour clock. They're going to have drafts available with an eight-hour clock, and they're going to have live drafts nightly. Um, you know, so I think that that's one of the ways that they're going to really be looking to up the customer service and make it more convenient for everybody. You know, so pe- people who like a fast draft can have a, you know, you can have the live draft if you like it really fast. If you like a fast, slow draft, you can do the four-hour clock. If you if you aren't in a hurry and you maybe have things going on during the day or whatever, the eight-hour clock is for you. So there's there's something for everybody there, which is a, a great, great thing. And um, But the important thing is nothing has really been finalized yet, and there is a survey out there that you can take. And I highly recommend that anybody who's interested in playing MFLs, please take that survey. Um, if you go to my Twitter feed, at Overhyped Sleeper, uh, drop that final E, so S-L-E-E-P-R, you're going to find that survey pinned to the top of my Twitter feed. So you can just click click on that and take that survey. And they really are paying attention to it at Fanball. I've been talking to a couple of the guys, um, Scott Fish and Christian Peterson, who are really – kind of putting together uh, how MFLs are going to look. And they are paying attention to what's going on with that survey. So if you if you have thoughts about it, please take that survey. There is a question at the end where it's kind of free form. You can say whatever you want to say uh, about what you think about the product. So take that opportunity. Mike, your thoughts? Yeah, I agree with everything Dan said. Uh, you know, obviously the rake is going to go up. Um, I do uh, love the timer. I love the ability to do a live draft uh, at night. Um, that's fantastic. Um, you know, I, I I do a lot of these leagues, and, you know, sometimes juggling 10 or 15 of them with work is, is difficult, but being able to sit down and, and crank one out in three hours when I have the time would be amazing. Um, also, just alluding to, to the survey, um, yeah, please, anyone who's listening who does play MFL, do that. One of the questions there is the payout structure, um, be it 100 to first or 70, 20, I, I think one was 70, 20, 10 or something like that. They're, so they're, they're trying to figure out a payout structure that all goes to first, if it's top three, if it's top two, if it's a 50, 50. Um, and I think that's going to be pretty important. So, Which one of those do you like, Mike? Um, I, I kind of do like the hundreds. I, I do kind of like winner takes all. But, you know, the 70-20-10 has, you know, there, there is a, a little bit of an appeal to having a little bit if you come in second or third. I mean, for me this year it would have been great. 40% of my teams came in top three. So, you know, under something that paid out a top three, I would have done really well. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm open to both. I would probably, you know, if both were options, I think I would do, I would do both. Um, 
but it, it's definitely something that, that they're looking at. Um, you know, and, but mostly I'm curious and, and interested to see the interface and um, how it's done, how it's set up, ease of use, uh, you know, dashboard tools, things like that. Um, you know, the My Fantasy League had that one page where you could constantly see where all your drafts were, how far you were from each pick. That, and that's crucial. No way, yeah, that's no crucial. Ten or twelve drafts at a time without that one place you can look to see what's going on. Um, and you can't so, do ten or twelve at a time on a four-hour clock. No, no. Um, it's just it's just too much. And and if you're away from the computer for five hours, who knows what's going to happen? Um, you know, and there was also talk about revising the auto-pick structure so it doesn't automatically give the highest ADP guy. You know, so there are a lot of little things that people aren't thinking about that, that are going to need to be addressed that are going to really make a difference. Yep. Um, and the biggest point that I think you guys, uh, Dan touched on it a little bit. The biggest point was, you know, I live in Pennsylvania. They just passed a rule um, I might not have been able to play at best ball next year uh, through MFL. Uh, so uh, I'm glad that Fanball has it and that they've made the investment and that no matter what Pennsylvania does, Fanball's big enough to handle uh, these fees. I, I don't mind giving up a little bit of rake. Uh, part of my survey, what I said was, you know, look, uh, the old structure was $10, $25, $50, and $100 rake. Why not make the 10 and the 25 $15 rake and make the 50, the 50 and 100 $25 rake? I was talking to Scott Fish also, and he said the predominant amount was the 10. The other ones were a blip on the radar. Well, if they lower the rake on the higher-priced games – well, then I'm going to be more tempted to play higher stakes and not play, you know, 90%. Uh, I think I was like 85 to 90% 10s and then some 25s. I did 150 and 200s. Um, so I, I think that they should consider that. Um, I'm always going to hope for the best. Uh, I know Scott very well, and he is a great guy. And, you know, if he has anything to say about it, it's going to be pretty good. Um, I put a couple things that are deal breakers for me. Uh, you know, if it's only a four-hour clock, I'm just not going to be able to do the volume because I can't, you know, I can't, um, you know, I, I, I don't think I hold up drafts too much. You guys have both drafted with me plenty, uh, but, there's got to be a limit when you have a job to, to how often you can check. Some people are working eight hours. They can't look uh, other than lunchtime at their, at their, um, so I hope if they do implement four hour clocks, it's uh, an option. It's not a, uh, you know, the only choice because that will seriously derail the amount of these that I can do at any one time. Um, I do, the other thing they're going to be doing, it looks like, is adding a couple hours at night um, where the clock stops. And that's great because, if you, again, if you do 10 to 15 of these at a time and you sleep for eight hours, you're, there's a good chance you're going to miss a pick. Uh, so, you know, I would find myself waking, you know, you wake up in the night, you go to the bathroom, you come back. I pull my phone out, 
just double check my leagues to make sure I wasn't going to, if I went back to bed for another three hours, I wasn't going to miss any picks. And a bunch of times I had to make picks sitting in my bed in the middle of the night. So uh, I like that they're doing that. Uh, And I kind of like 70, 20, 10. It's more like real fantasy football that way. I would have liked 60, 25, 10, even better. Uh, But 70, 20, 10 is fine. And uh, that, those are my thoughts. So, uh, Dan, do you want to take some more on uh, what Mike and I said? Yeah, I think I think you all had some great points. Um, you know, and I, the sense I got is that they're definitely not going to do just a four-hour clock. There will be a four-hour and eight-hour option. I think they're it, from from what I've been able to glean, it seems like they're pretty set on there will be an eight-hour option for sure. Um, which is great. That's what I prefer. That's primarily what I'm going to be uh, going with. You know, I might do some of the four-hour ones as long as they're going to have the overnight pause. You know, I'll take a look at that. That might be a possibility. I'll at least try them out and see how they work. But, uh, you know, eight hours would kind of be my default just because I'm not in a hurry. We've got six months. You know, what's what's the hurry? If, it, if the draft <laughs> takes, you know, 10 days, 12 days, 14 days, 16 days, well, the other thing is, if you're doing 10 to 12 at a time, you yep. don't notice if a draft's going slow. Exactly. I mean, I, I mean, you know, I get it. If you're a guy who does one or two drafts and you go two days without making a pick, like if you're in a like the Scott Fitch Bowl or some season-long league with guys you don't know with an eight-hour clock, and, you know, I had days during the Fish Bowl that I didn't make a pick all day, it, it is irritating. But at the same time, that's why I do more drafts because I never notice because I'm always picking plenty. Yeah, yeah. Early in the season, I notice it a little bit more just because I'm, you know, I'm doing maybe, you know, two, three, four, five drafts at a time, maybe six, something like that. But when we get later in the season, you know, and I've got, I got 14, 16 of those things running at the same time, you know, I'm, I'm kind of glad of that eight-hour timer. Uh, you know, I do, I, I do try to, to pick as quickly as I can. And for the most part, I am pretty quick. I mean, you know, my average pick is well under an hour, um, in, in pretty much every case, but every once in a while, you know, especially if you're stuck on the ends of the draft, um, having that long timer, you know, cause if you're, if you're at number 10 and you make your pick at, um, you know, say nine o'clock at night, and then the guy who's picking at 11, doesn't pick until after midnight and then all of a sudden the guy who's picking 12 picks his two and the guy who was picking 11 had a, an auto pick lined up you know all of a sudden it's like bam you're on the clock right away uh but you were the last time you picked you were four picks away and i'm not going to sit there and make an auto pick that's four picks away um for the most part you know wait i'm not going to pre-draft that far ahead either yeah you know wait in the draft fine you know when we get down to rounds 18 19 20 yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I've got seven, eight, nine picks lined up in a queue and, you know, whatever. I'm, I'm throwing myself on the auto draft and that's fine. Uh, but, but early in the draft or in the middle of the draft, those picks are just, they're too crucial. I mean, you know, you can win or lose a draft on a 10th round pick very, very easily. And I'm not going to sit there and, and just say, well, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, pick this five or six picks ahead. Yep. Good stuff, guys. Really enjoyed having you come on. Uh, 
you know, we're definitely going to do it again. Anytime that you guys think of something that you want to talk about, uh, you know, let me know and we'll uh, do it. As you know, uh, I often always end the show with a song. Uh, I'm going to put this one out there for you, Dan. Um, I hope you hang around and listen to it. Uh, Hoping for better things for you next year. All right. Never mind. I forgot to take the metronome out of there. Uh, It was That's Life by Frank Sinatra. And I'm not going to torture everyone by making them listen to that damn metronome when I changed it to an MP3. That's too bad. That would have been pretty funny. Oh, gosh. That that would have been about perfect. Well, what I keep telling myself is, you know what? Maybe I had this bad MFL season, and the entire reason is why is because the Vikings are going to win the Super Bowl. So that's all that matters. Vikings win the Super Bowl. I'm going to be extremely happy with my year. Well, that's very hopeful of you. Um, but, you know, I'm still going to bust your balls with a different song. Um, <laughs> this, this is for Dan <laughs>
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.